You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Here we are on 2021 in the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast, and we are going to start the year on the right step. I am happy to say that I'm extremely excited what this year has to bring. And now, having had been a survivor of COVID-19 myself, it was awful. Having the opportunity to meet up again with my guest, it's remarkably exciting. Well, we have today a woman leader, a physician, and her name is Dr. Angela Abutalib. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Dr. Abutalib is uh, joining us from Chicago, Illinois. And I was referred to Dr. Abutalib as a woman leader and as a prominent physician within my current company. And I was remarkably thrived about, about her history. And she has a lot, a lot, a lot of things to tell about how she came into America as an international medical graduate. So first of all, Dr. Abutalib, thank you for taking a few minutes of your busy day and joining us today. Thank you for having me. No, it's awesome. And <laughs> as I said earlier before, as we were getting prepared to start the interaction, I haven't had that many women on the show. And I know that it's remarkably difficult, specifically on this field of medicine, to really punch through and become a female, a woman leader among the specialty. So tell us what you're currently doing and what's your life like and how you're staying warm in Chicago. <laughs> sure. So uh, I'm a hospitalist. Internal medicine is my specialty. I've been doing hospital medicine for about seven to eight years now. I'm also the national director of quality and education for my division in our company, USA Acute Care Solutions. So I oversee quality for hospitalists, critical care doctors, and observation medicine. Wow. Observation medicine. So just I kind of try to kind of connect here with you. I was the director for a closed observation unit of 17 beds. Oh, wow. My prior job, I was a medical director and it was protocol driven and it actually run pretty well by itself. But mm -hmm. it, it took a lot of reminder and education of our physicians. So what was observation medicine? And I would say, you know, now internal medicine has a subspecialty called hospital medicine or you're a hospitalist. Mm -hmm. And we might say that observation medicine might be coming around and potentially might become its own board, correct? That's correct. So I I know, and we were looking at your how you made it through medical school, and that was such a long <laughs> path. Sometimes I do complain that for us uh, foreign medical grads, there is a lot of struggles and a lot of things to overcome. You finally succeeded at obtaining your medical degree, your MD degree, at St. Matthew's College of Medicine in the Grand Cayman Islands. By the way, it's a beautiful place to go to medical school. But tell us everything that you did go through. 
how was that very, very long path? It depends. How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, okay. Just let, let our, our listeners know that if they ever complain about working hard, what was it like for you? Oh, yes. Just looking back at this, it's, it's quite a story. So I was born and raised in California. And when I was 17, I had graduated from high school and um, I got into one of the UC schools in California with the intent that I was going to go into uh, electric engineering and then uh, proceed with medical school. So that was the plan. Then we took a uh, vacation to Egypt, my family and I, and my dad quickly found out that there was a school there that would take me being 17 into medical school right away and thought that that would be probably a good idea to bypass the whole electric engineering pathway. And of course, at being 17, I wasn't sure, was this a good idea? You know, I really didn't know. So I went along and uh, decided to do it. Uh, Unfortunately, it was only supposed to be for a year and then to see if I could get into med school from there. The idea behind it is to say, hey, she's 17. She made it through med school. You know, could she bypass the MCATs? That was kind of my dad's reasoning. And so I, one year turned into two and then turned into three. And then after three years, I said, I need to leave. (laughs) I need to take, you know, the boards and see if I can transition back to America. So I ended up going to Texas to take a review course. And then shortly after I found out that that hospital in Egypt was not accredited by the World Health Organization. So I uh, called them up (laughs) and, uh, you know, asked for the protocol as to how this would be you know, how can I, you know, put my school on accreditation? Uh, They told me that I needed to reach out to the Minister of Health and Education in Egypt. So I proceeded with that, wrote a letter. (laughs) This is all like at 19 years old. And so I did not go anywhere. So then I decided to transfer to another school, which was uh, St. Christopher's uh, College of Medicine, which is in the United Kingdom. And the deal was that you go there, you do your basic science in the UK, and then you could do your rotations in America. So they accepted me. And then I moved to Chicago with the idea that I was going to start my rotations. And the day before my rotations, the dean called me and said that, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to start because they did not accept my credits from the three years that I did because it's not accredited school. And then uh, that I would have to repeat med school all over again. In addition, in order to get licensure in America, I would need to complete 90 credits of undergrad. 90. Yeah. So then I said, all right. So then the next thing was, what do I do? Do I continue here? So I decided to enroll in four different schools, completed 90 credits in one year, and then packed my bags and went into the UK to restart med school all over again. Start restarted med school, did really good. And after six months, <laughs> they closed down that ho- that, that school. <laughs> oh my god! Unreal. <laughs> yeah, totally out of a movie. So you know, I was faced at that time. Friends and family were like, "Hey, you know, honestly, Angie, I think that you need to give up on this. <laughs> this is you can't go to another med school. What's going to happen then?" But I was determined, and I didn't want to take my MCATs at this point. I have was just so far along that I said, I don't want to go back and take my MCATs because I thought about, do I go back to undergrad, complete my undergrad, or do I do my MCATs? So it was up and down, but I just decided to apply to St. Matthew's, got into St. Matthew's, did really well, you know, became class representative, and then graduated from there and, and got residency in Chicago. Wow. So from the very beginning, it took you how many years? 
from uh, 17, <laughs> 23, 24? It took me a total of 13 years to, to finish up this whole path. Just that beginning without counting the three years of residency training? No, counting my three years of residency, yeah. So oh, everything all together, yeah. You're rather young, which is remarkably incredible that you have been able to accomplish so much so soon. But that's not unusual. In my personal case, like you, we didn't have to take the MCAT. So I was 16 and a half by the time I finished high school. And it's rather common for us to have no choices but just joining medical school straight ahead. And that's the way it is in our countries. Yeah. Or at least in South America and I guess in Egypt. So here are two things that I, I could potentially ask you from this. Okay. How influential was your father on one being a minor on make suggesting you that you should potentially become a doctor and skip the whole engineering career first? Well, it's it's funny because my dad is actually an aerospace electric engineer. <laughs> so it's funny when I say the story because people are like, "Well, wouldn't he had wanted you to go into the field that you know he yeah. was in?" But he's very um, numbers driven. So when he did the numbers, people kept telling him to get into med school. It's so hard. It's so hard in America. So there was this constant fear, and he knew I wanted to go into medicine. So. When this opportunity came up, he thought, okay, this is great. We're going to beat the odds. So it was almost like this is like a gift to you. I was too young to know, you know, at 17, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I just didn't understand the concept of what a World Health Organization is. What does it mean to be a foreign graduate? What is it? You know, I, I was still trying to just figure out, you know, my life at that point. So I think that he played a role in that he persuaded me with the full intention of this is this is your best bet given the odds that he was hearing and and since you said how crucial it is because many many people have have no clue on having a medical school that is actually part of the directory and credential by the world health organization and as i've been reviewing the new requisites to be able to be eligible for the usmle test taking your medical school had to be approved by the who and i think as of this year, they're going to be remarkably strict about that. And even if you attended a medical school like the one that you were going to in Egypt, you're not going to have the chance to sit down for the board. So it's crucial, right? And that's a process that none of us are aware, I guess. Uh, I don't know if you do remember probably at that time when you look for the, your medical school in this thick binder. <laughs> Was that your case back then yeah. in Egypt or in, yeah? In, in, in and Chicago? you look for to see if it's accredited. Yeah, just looking through the thousands <laughs> of medical school, finding for a number of years, and then you realize, OMG, mine is not part of the select group. What am I gonna do now? But but everything makes sense. So, but you know what's funny about all, this whole story is that you know I had reached out to the Minister of Health. And they, after I left, they went in and reevaluated, and the, pos the the school was then placed on the World Health Organization because of my my letter. Oh God! But it was I wasn't grandfathered in. That was the problem. It's just a simple reminder to all our listeners out there: just just make sure that before you're <laughs> going to medical school or while being in medical school, verify that actually your university, your college, your medical school is enrolled within the directory of the international medical schools that are listed within the World Health Organization. I, I don't think it's a complicated process, but it's definitely necessary to be able to sit down for the USMLEs. Going back to your education, obviously, having gone to part of education in Egypt, 
you had to speak another language and you learned part of your medicine in another language or were they teaching you in English? The books were in English, tests were in English, but lectures were semi, both in yeah. Arabic and English. So that was definitely a hurdle for me. But, you know, I, I, I do speak Arabic. Um, my Arabic did get better then because I was kind of in survival mode, I had to, <laughs> I had to learn how to sell, you know, how to understand what artery means in Arabic and sell. But um, I did a lot of, I got a lot of tutors. So that really helped. Would you say that you're a better doctor nowadays because the educational experience that you obtained in Egypt and then followed by a British education as well and kind of learning the ways that each one of those parts of the world have into medicine? I do. I think that the education, unfortunately, that I that was at the Egyptian school, there was a lot of room for improvement. The UK, I learned really good physical exam. They don't tend to gear towards CTs, labs, the way that we do. So I learned how to be able to observe a patient, you know, really by when they walk in, just how they're walking in, how they're talking. So a lot of observation I learned from there. So I would say that that was a good point. Overall, I mean, I've lived in eight different places throughout this whole experience, and I think it just taught me how to learn how to deal with different people, especially my patients. And that that was one thing that I grew up a lot that I might not have learned, you know, if I had stayed in, in California. And what was the financial burden that you have had to carry to this day after jumping through so many countries and so many <laughs> medical school? Well, unfortunately, so, you know, the school that was in the UK, all of that money that I paid up front was gone. Um, so that was about 40000 that they had taken. They never gave it back. But I am proud to say that I have paid off all of my debt from all these schools. So, <laughs> Our listeners sometimes are concerned about the fact that how they're going to obtain funding to sustain themselves through all this process. And it's, it's rather expensive. We all know. And it takes a lot of commitment and sacrifice. Was your family supportive in the process financially or was this a do-it-yourself type of project? No, my family was very supportive. At, when I did get to my third med school, I wanted to take the full responsibility because this was my choice to continue. So they were there on backup, but I had told them that I wanted to take the full burden. So it's definitely, I mean, now med schools, whether you go to a foreign medical school or you go to a U.S. school, they're saying that uh, every student's going to graduate with at least 400, some 500,000 in debt. So it's it's pretty expensive. I know my brother went to med school after me a few years later, and he had way more debt than I did. So it is a very expensive process. And, and for our listeners, she's talking 400, 500, not 500 dollars, 500,000 no, no. <laughs> dollars. Yeah, yeah. And when you finally got your diploma, what kind of emotions were flowing through your body that day that finally your name was called and you gathered that awesome piece of paper in your hand? I honestly, when people ask me what was one of the happiest moments of your life, it was that day. I cried and cried because it was 13 years of a lot of struggles. And that's just the beginning of the process, obviously. As an IMG now, you need to, I guess that you probably by then had taken the USMLEs, correct? Yes. So I would call it the Caribbean medical schools kind of prepare you on the process to be ready for the USMLE step one, two, three. And I guess back in your days was the CSA. Yes, correct. Not we had to do that too. CK. Mm -hmm. It is crazy. Now let's, let's take a step back. I'm a foreign medical grad. It was remarkably difficult to make it into an uh, America. 
just because I had the label in my forehead of being a foreign medical graduate and my name was Alonso Javier Osorio Giraldo. And I came from a weird medical school in Bucaramanga, Colombia. And it was just painful to really let people see me for who I really was and everything that I had to offer. Right now, as all these applicants are going right now through the interviewing process, what would you say that you said back then to the interviewers, specifically yourself, what was the things that you tried to bring up and that you said that make you stand up among the crowd of thousands of applicants to make, become a, a holder of one of those spots in GME in the United States? Yeah, I mean, I think, and it's funny because in retrospect, I, I ended up asking the person who interviewed me, you know, what was it about me that made you want to take me, you know, out of all these spots, uh, all these, all these applicants, I mean, and uh, he said it was your passion. He said, you know, we get so many people that come in and they just do this because they want to just be a doctor just because it, there is no passion behind it. So I would say passion really drives that. And that's really what makes you stand out to show that you are hardworking and you're passionate about this because a lot of people go into med school, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're passionate about it. Another thing that I could gather from this is potentially to get our, get our, give our listeners a way on how to explain educational gaps or jumping in between one place and the other and jumping in between countries. How do you have to explain yourself in paper or in person when they ask you? So tell me about your life. I mean, you went from uh, Chicago, Illinois to Egypt and from Egypt to the United Kingdom and from the United Kingdom to the Cayman Islands. And then you're here in America. And I don't know if there was a month here in between here or there. How do you explain your, your, your gaps? I mean, I know that these people are obsessed with educational gaps and trying to fill in those? And what was the way that you actually fulfilled that requirement? It's actually a good question because I will tell you that was one of the things that I struggled with. One thing that I did that I got feedback that helped was I did a cover letter for every single application and I wrote my story and I explained it. I think that helped in a sense that when they looked at my CV, they were able to put all the pieces together because if you look at my CV, you have, a, there's a lot of questions like, why did she go here? Why did she go here? What happened here? You know? So I did that. The other thing is my essay, your essays that you write. I definitely made sure that, you know, I really told the story, especially during med school. I don't know if you currently do remind what you wrote, but I don't know what was the initial hook that you used to get the person interested in getting them attracted to your personal essay. <laughs> so I use this quote, uh, when thrown a curve, one must adjust one swing. And that was my quote that always kind of gathered the, the reader as to why is she saying this? And Say really, again. I was, do you mind? Th- that? Yeah. When thrown a curve, one must adjust one swing. Correct. So I guess in this uh, case, you're probably trying to it actually makes sense with your personal life. You've been thrown so many curves, like a like a baseball. And you have adjusted your swing path. So you had to adjust your life, your persona, to not only deal with the struggles of that, but live in different cultures, learn different language, move from different continents to different areas of the world. And then finally, to really try to make yourself stand you know, apart here in the U.S., right? So yeah. that def- definitely makes sense. And so there you go, guys. You have a fantastic hook. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying use Dr. Vitalibs, but 
it, it is a good one. So once you're here in America and you went through a residency process, uh, how many interviews did you total get? Total get? Um, I had a I had a good handful. I had applied for family medicine and applied for internal medicine. To be honest with you, I was leaning more towards internal medicine. But it was funny because the one, the place that I wanted, I ranked them high and, and they also wanted me as well. So it worked out really well. And my friend was at that residency program. So it really helps to, you know, shadow, go there, do a rotation there. If you could do a sub I, that helps. So that's what I did. So all the places that had offered for me to come in and do interviews, um, I even had offers for OB-GYN, which I didn't want, uh, but I had done sub I's with these places and they had asked me. That really helps as a foreign graduate because you're no longer just a number, but they now know you. Our listeners, uh, when Dr. Abutalib says sub I, sub internships, correct? Correct. Yes. And uh, well... Many people say, well, since you're a foreign medical graduate, an international medical graduate, you have to settle for a primary care residency. And I don't think that's the case. Many of us just want to do it because that's our career path and our career choice. And you said that you thought about doing family medicine like I, I did first, mm-hmm. and I did emergency medicine. But in your case, you knew that you wanted to be an internist and you ranked this program pretty high on your list and you were successful. Yeah. That's another expensive uh, deal how many programs totally you apply to you think i know that i applied to all the programs in chicago area and then i think another state so i didn't go i didn't go nationwide i was so tired of traveling so at that point i didn't want to i didn't want to move anymore i just wanted so i really focused on the chicagoland area so one more thing as an internist i know that now for several years we have had the option of doing hospital medicine can you explain briefly what is hospital medicine and how an internist could become a hospitalist? Sure. So, I mean, I'll tell you a little bit about my training. So my training is, I would say, was mostly 80 to 85% inpatient. So we did all of our training. I was heavy on ICU training, heavy on the inpatient. So when a patient comes in, we took care of them um, from the beginning they came in to the time they got discharged on the inpatient side. And then we did a one day a week for clinic, which was outpatient. That was what we call continuity. So versus family medicine is very heavy, mostly on the outpatient side. Internal medicine is specialized only on adult health. So we only see people from, you know, above 17 and above a lot of geriatric patients. So we have older patients that we see, but we take care of everything. And our training is in everything in terms of cardiology, nephrology. We have months where we get trained in this very heavily. And so we are almost trained to be hospitalists. Hospitalists are doctors that are specialized in hospital medicine, which is what we were you know, trained in. Now you look at a lot of the family medicine programs now, Some of them have changed the way that they train where it was so heavy on the outpatient. Some of them now have changed where they do do a lot of training on the inpatient side as well. So it all depends. So if you go into family medicine, the best thing to do is if you want to go into hospital medicine to look at the track. I mean, I've hired people that have specifically were graduate of family medicine and they're great physicians and they specifically picked a track that was designated where they were in the inpatient side more than the outpatient side. So versus internists, we're mostly all um, inpatient. So I'm going to throw you a curve here. Uh (laughs) And I'll adjust my swing. (laughs) (laughs) In my case, 
I was a family physician, but I was never really seen as an emergency physician working in the emergency room because I was not residency trained in emergency medicine. That's why I had to go back and, and I, I wanted to do it all over again. It was a little bit of an ego thing for me and it was so competitive. I tried so hard the first time around that I didn't make it. Now, if I am a family physician now in 2021 mm-hmm. and I would like to pursue a career in hospital medicine, and here comes the, the connection, do you think that the internist will see me as a competent hospitalist, even despite the fact that I was not trained in internal medicine? You know, it's interesting that you say that because there it, it all depends. So there are some family medicine trained people that were mostly outpatient that come into the hospice world and they struggle. So we do see that. And then others that come and they succeed very, very well. I will tell you this. I mean, I hire, I've hired a lot of our hospitalists. Very rarely do you see a hospitalist that comes in that someone asks them, are you family medicine or internal medicine trained? That doesn't really happen. I personally may know because I've interviewed them and I know their background and I've asked them, you know, what track that they were on as family medicine, you know, providers. But no, there's really not that discrepancy. Like I said, I've seen some amazing family medicine people that I've hired that do such an amazing job. It just depends on the training and what kind of residency they have. How many patients do you have currently under your umbrella? Uh, How many doctors uh, in in your Um, programs across the nation? So we currently were up to about 15 sites that are um, hospital medicine. Observation sites are about 14. And then we've got also critical care sites as well that are embedded in these sites. I can tell you something in my personal experience. Uh, the internists that work as hospitalists, they're fast thinkers. I think they think really fast. And for some reason, they have similar mindset to the emergency medicine thought process. <laughs> Let's focus on this one. Uh, you can focus on the length of stay, on uh, productivity, on what is important. What can I do to accomplish these goals of this position? And how am I going to involve the family and the uh, care providers and the whole PTOT, respiratory therapy, psychology, rehabilitation team into my game? Do you agree with that fact that mm-hmm. probably the, the hospitals have a fast-paced mindset? when compared to most of the outpatient physicians? I do. And I think that that's, it goes back to our training, right? So I was, I was embedded in the inpatient world versus somebody who's out in the outpatient world. So it's just more so it's what we're seeing. We're dealing with case managers. It goes back to your residency and the training. I do agree in that aspect. One question. What factor in America and when do you think we started seeing the hospitals kind of take on that type of lifestyle and letting the primary care physician that at 5 p.m. was running from their clinic into the hospital to do rounds very late during the day until late hours or at four o'clock in the morning before they even start their clinic. When do you think or what factors influence that? Was it insurance changes? Was life pressures? Was lifestyle? Was it technology? I don't know. But I do see that many of the old-fashioned doctors, the ones with the gray hair that still kind of walk around (laughs) the hospital that do morning rounds, do a clinic, and then they come back at five, they're fading away, and there's just a few that you can count with your fingertips. It's all of the above. So I will tell you, hospital medicine is a field that probably came around 1990s. So it is not something that has been around for 
70 years. It's, it's fairly new, if you think of it, from the 1990s. There's a lot of factors. The Initially, what was happening that you had transition doctors, so they kind of did transitional care, like they took care of the patients in the outpatient and they took care of the patients in the inpatient, so they did both. And then as there became more pressure on these physicians for multiple reasons, Medicare, length of stay, there was more high demand in the hospital, they needed physicians that would be dedicated just to the hospital. And so the concept of having one doctor doing both, which, you know, patients had a hard time because it was suddenly my primary care is who I see through all the aspect of, you know, whenever I'm sick, whether it's outpatient, whether it's the inpatient, that completely got interrupted. And it became, now it's two teams. And from there, there has been great things. And there's also been some, some disadvantages to this. So yes, they solved the issue when it came to insurances, to readmissions. They solved the issue when it came to length of stay. They solved a lot of issues, but they also did not solve one big issue, which is the communication with the primary care doctors, right? So that is something that I think there's room for improvement in. And so, yeah, there's definitely you know more to come on that. As we can see, Hospital medicine and the way that we're dealing with the pressures of turnover and length of stay in the hospitals and the quality of care and metrics that are being judged by Medicare, I see the need for potentially requiring more hospitals in the years to come. My feeling is that still out there, there is the need to create some sort of motivation or awareness within the internists and residency programs in internal medicine and family medicine that potentially hospital medicine is a career path of choice for many of us. I actually think that most people are gearing towards hospital medicine that are internists for the lifestyle. So I will tell you, when I was an intern, my whole class, we all wanted to go into fellowship. So every single one of us, we all came first day. We all had our, our consulting hats on. And then the day we graduated, we all went into hospital medicine, which, you know, for very, for a lot of factors, I think number one, we all wanted to have that lifestyle of seven on, seven off. We liked that, of being able to have that flexibility. Number two, we knew that we could definitely grow in this field. So whether it's leadership, you know, you can work as much or you can work as less. So it gives you more flexibility. And it's just, it was burnout. We just, none of us really felt that we wanted to go into fellowship. And I specifically wanted to be trained in a community hospital for that reason. I didn't want to do a university because I wanted to feel secure enough to be in a hospital. And, you know, depending on my surroundings, I wouldn't need a consultant if I'm in a, you know, rural area. So it was very easy for us to have that training and feel strong enough to all of us say, okay, we're going to, we're going to do hospital medicine. By making emphasis on what you have just said, look at the difference to our listeners. Dr. Abu Talib chose to go to a suburban, you know, training program in which he actually knew what was she looking for. Because sometimes if you go into a more educational university program, it becomes really geeky and consultation driven. And sometimes <laughs> that's when you, you know, see more of the fellowship doctors type of flourishing around those university centers. And that's where they like to stay. And if you're into teaching, that's where you like to stay. But if you're more like me, less of a educational doctor, more of a clinical daily practice physician. I wanted that kind of exposure. 
And, and I think that's what you got, the West Suburban Hospital in Oak Park, Illinois, correct? Correct, yeah. Awesome. Well, last uh, few things of advice. Let's say that um, I'm a foreign medical grad. I make it into internal medicine, and then I decide to choose my career path as a hospitalist. Very large, mixed, different type of practices. You have a small group owned by one doctor that has 10 physicians under his umbrella, and he has contracts in one or two hospitals. Then you have large national or multi-state uh, medical groups. What's the type of environment that uh, internal medicine hospitalists can or will es uh, expect to find out there in the current marketplace? There, it all varies. So you will find what we call hospital-based employees. So these are hospitalists that the hospital themselves have employed. And then you've got the smaller groups, which are private which are contracted, and you can have the national groups, which is what I'm part of. And the national groups are also contracted through the hospital. So it all varies. There's pros and cons to both, uh, both sites. There's really, I would say the best thing to do is not really focus on that, but focus mostly on, you know, the group that you feel comfortable with, because at the end of the day, you're still practicing the same medicine and the hospital. And what percentage of all your doctors in your current practice that are under your umbrella, what percentage of those are for FMGs or IMGs based on your experience? Oh, a good percentage. Definitely. There's a very good percentage. Um, I would definitely say more than 50%. Wow. Yeah, we, have a, go, good, we have a good amount. Yeah. And this might be a little tricky, but financially, is there more financial satisfaction and reward working as a hospitalist than having your own practice? Yes, absolutely. And this is why most people go into hospital medicine for the financial reward of it. So there you go, guys. <laughs> Not only you are seven on, seven off. Uh, during those seven days, you dedicate yourself to your family, especially if you're a mom or you have hobbies, especially us, the newer, younger guys. We like to enjoy life more outside of work. And I think that kind of gives a little bit of wellness and it spins a little bit of happiness into our practice. Dr. Abutalib, this has been awesome. I know you had a lengthy pathway, so <laughs> uh, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. A final tip of advice for all of our FMGs out there that are willing to come into America and struggle probably as little or as much as you did. <laughs> <laughs> My final advice is just don't give up. I mean, I didn't give up, and thankfully I, I made it, so don't give up. Yeah, guys, if one door closes, I can assure you another big one will open up. Yes. Dr. Abutalib, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your fantastic time. Thank you. And with this, we say hello. Thank you for your presence. And oh, one more thing. Yes. Uh, have you remained COVID free? Am I? Oh, no, I got COVID. <laughs> I got COVID early on. So another yeah. victim, <laughs> another victim. So please, everyone, wear your masks, wear your masks. <laughs> and take your vaccines. <laughs> COVID well, is not fun. You have said it. Thank you all. And uh, thanks. thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. And well, let's be ready for the next episode. We continue to grow. And I hope 2021 has a lot of fantastic guests coming through the pipes. And I really want to thank you one more time. The Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast is proudly sponsored by nextdaypodcast.com. As I said, nextdaypodcast.com. 
They provide podcasters like me with affordable podcast editing services with 24 hours turnaround. You simply send them your raw recordings and they do the rest. If you're not podcasting right now at this moment, check out their amazing podcast launch package. I'm one of those that is extremely satisfied. And if you use the promo code Medical Next Day, that's Medical Next Day, you will receive 10% of any of their services. Again, that's nextdaypodcast.com. <laughs>